Hello, and welcome to episode number eight of the Anxiety Book Club. Can you believe it? Eight episodes? That's eight months of reading books and talking to people. Gee golly. Anyways, this episode's about insomnia. So if you've been having trouble sleeping, I think this might really help. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for sticking around during these trying times. This month, I am very pleased to have Colleen Ernstrom, Dr. Colleen Ernstrom, who is a licensed clinical psychologist out there in Louisville, Colorado. She is not only a psychologist, but of course, an author, which is why she's joining us today. She's a practicer and therapist in ACT, which early listeners might know from the Stephen Hayes episode, that's acceptance and commitment therapy. And she specializes in sleep disorders, including insomnia, anxiety, and depression. Colleen, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I appreciate being here. I'm, I'm so excited to talk about this topic. Uh, I think the topics that scare me the most often wind up being the most rewarding. Early on in the book, very early on, this is page V, which the Roman numeral is indicating how early we are in the book. It says that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is as effective as medication. Now, when I read that, it was like a, a few moment. I wiped some sweat from my brow and I was like, okay, it's going to be okay. So that's really promising. Do you want to say anything anything else about that? Because I, I feel like medication is something that people know is going to work. Like the Ambien is definitely going to work, but but therapy, maybe people have their doubts Yeah, I think, I think there's some um, layers to that that are really important. And I think the first one is that that doesn't mean that if you love your meds that you have to give them up. It doesn't mean that we have judgments against meds. It's about creating this opportunity for non-pharmacological interventions. And the research shows that it's equally effective to medications in the short run, but more effective over time. And that's because what you're doing is you're really teaching your brain how to support the healthy physiology of sleep. Whereas we think of meds as more of a supportive measure that help us to kind of get back into sleep, cognitive behavioral therapy helps to really promote long-term strategies. So it's really more effective in the long run. And for those of you that, that haven't looked at the workbook, we actually spend quite a bit of time in talking about how to navigate cognitive behavioral therapy if you are taking meds, if you want to continue to take meds, if you would like to get off of meds. So if meds are part of your life, it's not a deal breaker. There's a lot of ways to integrate these techniques. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me think of a lot of things. One thing I, I think I just, I failed to mention the title, right? So this book is called End the Insomnia Struggle, a step-by-step guide to help you get to sleep and stay asleep. And Colleen wrote it along with her co-author, Alicia Gross, like floss. Um, so that's good to know. And I think something else you said is sort of describes the tone of the book, which is that there's not kind of a one size fits all or a magic bullet kind of thing. So if you you're on meds or you're not on meds, you like meds, but you don't like meds, this book can provide solutions to fit sort of your needs. Yeah, exactly. We worked really hard to design it so that it really sounds like and, and leads you through a um, personalized program. We sometimes call it a choose your own adventure because we really try to help you to you know, start with 
what you know are your specific stressors and challenges with sleep, what you've already tried, and then lean into different pieces and parts of the program so that you don't feel like you're just getting a one-size-fits-all. Because we know that 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 doesn't work. I know for me personally, my sleep challenges are mostly around having anxiety about sleeping. Uh, Not so much some of the other things that you get into like circadian rhythm disturbances where maybe people's clocks are, are... sort of not shifted as, as they would like. But my thing has always been like, oh, I don't want to talk about sleep. I don't want to think about sleep because once I do that, when I lay in bed at night, I'll keep asking myself, are you asleep? Are you asleep? Why aren't I asleep? This is terrible. That sort of hole that you can kind of dig yourself into, especially with something as fundamental as Yeah, as well, it's you're so not alone. There are so many people that experience that same type of anxiety and it gets you know, even more complicated when and exacerbated when you hear about all the health concerns about what happens if you don't get the sleep. And, you know, we, we really want the sleep and the more that you want it, and the more that you get into that struggle, the more that it interferes with the sleep. And that's really where the title came from is really looking at that struggle, or oftentimes in the book, we call it a, um, a spiral, where you're trying to kind of navigate and regain control, but it actually pulls you into a spiral that makes it more difficult to sleep. Right. And so that's what can be so triggering, at least I think for me, um, in discussions about sleep, because there's that paradox, right? There's the great irony of if if you don't have, you know, a therapist or a, a great book like this in your corner, the more you think about it, maybe the more your frustration will increase and the more your struggle will increase. I think that's a great segue to the skiing metaphor in chapter two, uh, which I suppose since y'all are out there in Colorado, maybe you do a lot of skiing, (laughs) but you know, I'm, I'm from Miami, right? I don't, you know, I've seen, I've touched snow, I felt it in my hands before, but I haven't uh, slided quickly uh, down a hill covered in it, but it seems like we can learn from skiing in, in learning how to think about promoting better sleep. Uh, so there's this distinction between focusing on the trees and trying to miss them. Can, can you talk a little sure, bit about Sure. And that? if you really have, you know, no connection with skiing, I think biking can be a similar analogy. Um, in a lot of ways, biking and skiing both require a certain amount of willingness um, to have a little bit of speed. If you're not getting enough speed on a bike, you're going to fall over. And also looking at where you are intending to go versus what you want to avoid. You don't want to hit things on the bicycle either. But it's a huge part of um, what we think is is really important in navigating a healthy relationship with sleep. The human brain is wired to want to fix, and the human brain is wired to want to fix right away. So we have to have a lot of compassion and kindness for ourselves that when we're tossing and turning at night, we want it to go away and we want to fix it. And we're wired to want that. And then we have this added burden of our society sending us these messages that if we just did it right, we would be able to accomplish that. If you go to any search engine and put in, you know, sort of how to help yourself with sleep, you hear these pieces about the the cure and fixing it. And so we've got this double sort of um, pressure to believe that we can have sleep on our terms and that we can do things to make sleep happen in that moment. And the, the conversation about skiing and about biking is about asking us to consider a big paradigm shift um, and to really consider moving away from this 
assumption that we can fix it in the moment and more into this understanding that what we really want to do is promote a healthy relationship with sleep over time. And so we got the idea to talk about skiing because when you first learn to ski, you typically learn in this wide open space where you don't worry about trees. But as you develop more and more of a skill set, you tend to venture into these tighter spaces where you then must need to um, learn to avoid trees. And, And what's intuitive is this fixing it. I don't want to be up all night. I want to sleep is very consistent with I don't want to hit the trees. So we tend to pay attention to not hitting the trees and what you learn over time in regards to the most optimal way of skiing is shifting that paradigm shift into looking at the white spaces, looking at where you want to go versus where you do not want to go. And that's hugely helpful with ending an insomnia struggle is shifting away from this idea of I should be able to get myself to go to sleep. I should be able to promote, you know, sleep on my terms into what are the white spaces? Where do I want to go? If I want to promote healthy sleep, what does that look like? And so we spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about what healthy sleep is, because a lot of us were never taught that. We're just taught what we don't want. That certainly resonates. And I sort of like the idea with the skiing, where if you just focus on the trees, you can't help but collide into them because that's kind of where your attention is. But if you start to shift your focus and and look for the white spaces, and it kind of reminds me of maybe a distinction between like, like surviving and thriving. I've been watching this TV show on Amazon about these people that are alone in the war, alone in the forest, and they have to survive there for as long as possible. And they keep making the distinction between like just surviving for a day versus really the truly like living. So you know maybe like those quick fixes that you get when you Google, possibly perhaps could help you get to sleep that very night. But this is more of like a long term building, as you've said, sort of a more healthy relationship with the way that yeah, you go to bed. Yeah, I love that. That's spot on. We also just have to be super careful not to get too judgmental with ourselves and others when we have the urge for a quick fix, when we have an urge to survive. I mean, that's inherent in the way that we are built. And so we want to be really careful that we're not trying to judge that or get rid of that, more so that we're trying to move beyond that. I like that, you know, moving into not just surviving, but also thriving. Yeah. Yeah. I hear, I hear you clearly on the sort of whole, not the judgment thing. I think that actually features and we're skipping ahead a little bit, but there's a whole chapter on cognitive restructuring. And so, you know, from a, an earlier book that where we talked about binge eating or eating, if you eat the muffin, you're not supposed to eat the muffin, you could say to yourself, oh, my whole diet's ruined, I might as well eat the rest of the box. That's sort of a distortion, right? So if we put away the judgment, oh, like I wasn't planning on taking Ambien tonight, but I have like an important presentation to give tomorrow morning, you don't need to say something like, oh, I've just ruined my whole week of being diligent about sleep promotion, kind of give yourself a little compassion there to help you get back on track more easily. Is that... Yeah, that's spot on. And that is the part where um, the acceptance and commitment model um, has been really valuable in optimizing the cognitive behavioral therapy. So that's a lot of acronyms. So just to kind of give some context to that. So the the gold standard non-pharmacological, so non-medical intervention for insomnia is cognitive behavioral therapy. And that comes from the um, understanding that we're addressing both the cognitions and the thoughts as well as the behaviors. And then acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a a third wave version of CBT, 
but really focuses more on psychological flexibility in the process, um, has those two have worked really well together in terms of creating psychological flexibility around when I take the Ambien, why do I take the Ambien? If I took the Ambien and I feel badly about it, how do I kind of reset and decide what I'm going to do the next night? Yeah, I think that stuff is is really, really crucial. The X stuff, I, I mean, it's I guess it's maybe no surprise that it's useful here with the insomnia stuff, because anytime you can inject a little bit of gentleness or, or for lack of a better word, like love into a difficult process, which, which perhaps, you know, the struggle with insomnia can be one of those, maybe you add resilience and, and probably increase the likelihood of success. Absolutely. And, you know, CBT for insomnia is hard because it's asking you to do a lot of delay of gratification. It's asking you to have this big paradigm shift to override these instinctual urges to want to fix it now and to let go of what we all have, which is some pretty longstanding patterns of, I know this probably doesn't bode well for me in the long run, but it feels pretty good now. An example of that might be reaching for extra caffeine in the afternoon when you feel tired or sleeping in on the weekends. There's there's some immediate relief there, but over time, those get in the way. And so I think it's really important to um, add in that flexibility because one of the biggest challenges with the model is just being able to stick to it. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll get to some of that more difficult stuff in a minute. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the sleep diary. So this was something I was very uncomfortable uh, <laughs> doing. I did not want to start monitoring my sleep. I figured I wouldn't sleep at all. And I, I must admit that, so I bought the book. It came, I kept it in its package for That's a few fair. days. <laughs> and yeah, and then I, I took it out and um, I I read it. The first, and, and I read it and I read those hopeful things that I was mentioning in the beginning about how, according to the research, it's it's as good or as you say, in the long term, even better than than medication. And I relaxed a little bit, you know? Because uh, I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to read this book. I'm never going to oh, sleep no. again. <laughs> yeah, that, that was my whole fear about it. And I will say the first night after having read it, even though the content was very supportive, I was thinking about sleep a lot that night. And so my sleep was a bit fitful. And then, and then so sleep tracking, it seems like in order to use the book, one of the things you're, you're asked to do, I guess this is one of the tenets of CBT, or, or at least you need, a, you need to collect mm -hmm. some data before you know what the problem is. So I didn't do it on the weekends, but I do it during the week. So I have that you calculate every day, how many hours you think you were asleep and then how many hours you, you spent in the bed. And then you assemble an accuracy. So I, I, I was kind of curious. I only did this for a week, but I got 87.7%. That's your efficiency? Your that was my efficiency, yeah. I, I was feeling pretty good about that. And then I looked at... The, I don't know what his name is, Bill or Bob or, or Brad, and see what his efficiency was. It seemed like over time he was able to get up to like 96 or 97. I know that's maybe a sample guy, but but is that a, a normal starting point and ending point? for what? Oh, these are that? great questions. And again, just to give context, um, so sleep diaries are meant to help you to assess sort of which program makes the most sense for you, as well as to then chart progress over time. But I hear you in terms of the pain that it can bring. Um, and when we created our sleep diary, we there's a million of them out there. And we um, really focused, it, it's a little overwhelming with all the squiggly lines, but we really wanted to look at a full week of information at a time. Because 
sleep is, is variable, just like appetite is variable. And so looking at one night, um, we don't know if that's a good night or a bad night or an awful night. We really want to look at aggregate information over time. Since then, there's been a lot of really wonderful apps that will now do a lot of the math for you. And there's even Fitbits and little gizmos that will collect the information so that you don't even have to write it down. But Josh, I so appreciate what you're saying, which is it's a really big and difficult first step to start paying attention on that level. And it, it's kind of analogous to paying attention to your calories if you're you know, looking at your food intake. It, it's important and it's relevant, but it's also really challenging and really hard to do that. So I appreciate how important that is in terms of anyone else that's thinking about doing that, you know, to sort of might take a few tries before you even get a full week of data. With that said, I think that what you're giving us is really important data. So I want to reinforce that it's worth it to collect it for even a week. They do recommend if you can to get two weeks, but I'm with you. If we can get one week, let's take it. And 87%, so a sleep efficiency, for those of you that are unfamiliar with that term, is really the number of hours that you're in bed, which is the opportunity for sleep divided by the number of hours that you're actually sleeping. So if you're in bed for 10 hours and you're sleeping for eight hours, then your sleep efficiency is 80%. And we look at that because we're looking at both quality and quantity of sleep. And when people have a lower sleep efficiency, then um, they're not getting a lot of quality of sleep. And, and a lot of people will tell us that, you know, I, I'm in bed for many, many hours, but I'm just, I'm not feeling rested the next day and I'm waking up a lot and I'm tossing and turning and it's taking me hours to fall asleep. And we use that efficiency guide as a, as a resource for increasing sleep efficiency. So the question about what are the averages around that, that's, that's fairly complicated. What we like to see is that we like to see people that um, have healthy um, sleep over time on average have a sleep efficiency of about 90%. Some people prefer 95, but I think especially in today's world, 90 is pretty good. So you're coming in at 80 what? 87. 87. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because you're self-identified as having sleep struggles and I respect that and honor that. But from the perspective of the sleep efficiency, it's pretty good. And, and all that means is, is that we would probably steer you away from the specific program for people that have much lower sleep efficiency. On average, the people that I see, they're, they're pretty, they're struggling a lot by the time they get to see me. Um, and I usually see people with a sleep efficiency m- much more in the realm of 50 to 65%. And when we have something that low, they're they're pretty miserable. And that's when we want to kind of go after a sleep efficiency program. But that doesn't mean that you aren't uncomfortable. It's just a way of assessing which behavioral program do you want to start with? Sure, sure. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think for me personally, I, I, my sleep is okay. It's definitely something I would like to have less fear around, less anxiety about the process of sleeping and being afraid of like what my days or weeks are going to look like if I if I don't sleep as, as well, but, you know, I think it's kind of about this, this thing in mental health or maybe in, in getting treated in general, like the question is like, when do you go to the doctor, right? Like, so if your, your knee aches a little bit, maybe you skip the doctor, but if it's broken, you definitely go. So, and this is a much larger question, but like, should we go see the doctors that treat our, our, our brains? Um, when we're really suffering or, you know, should we go just to like tweak them a little bit? Like, right. you know, 
and I, I don't know if there's an answer to that, but maybe like right. as a culture or, or maybe you, maybe you have a view of, of like in the ideal society, how would right. you be approaching Well, I think problem? that um, this is such a wonderful and fascinating question that is shifting so very rapidly. And within the sleep community, in terms of scholars and clinicians and researchers, there's been a huge conversation about this. Because for a long time, if you wanted to get specialized sleep, if you wanted to learn this model, the cognitive behavioral therapy model for insomnia, you needed to have a lot of resources. You needed to have good health insurance. You needed to have access to people that were well-versed in this model, that were specialists. And specialists, they take time, effort, and money. And I think a lot of people were really frustrated with that model and wanted to find um, more accessible ways to promote the education around sleep. And I think that, that part of what's been able to make that so successful is the internet. People can listen to podcasts like yours and learn quite a bit. And they also did some really important studies around, you know, could we teach primary care providers? Could we teach nurses? Could we teach graduate students to present this model? And what we found is, is that on a large level, we can. And so I think it's, it's pretty amazing and empowering to know that we can start with advocating for ourselves without putting out any more money um, and um, resources. Um, From there, I think the recommendation is that if you feel like you've got traction, if you feel like you've got momentum, if you feel like you've got accountability, then you can stop there. But then if you feel like you're not getting those things, then you want to move up the chain in terms of of who you want to work with and how you want to address it. So you mean someone could either through Google or maybe by picking up a book such as this one, work on things on their own. But if if they're having some accountability issues or not making progress, then by sort of move up uh, the ladder or 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 the metaphor you mentioned, you mean like engage a professional? That's correct. Yeah. And where we want to be especially concerned or aware or respectful about maybe having specialty clinicians involved is if you have really complex psychiatric diagnoses, which means that you um, have, you know, multiple diagnoses. In particular, we want to be very careful with sleep work and bipolar disorder. Um, It does not mean that you can't do the work if you have that diagnosis. In fact, Alicia, um, my co-author, who is fabulous, is the director of a bipolar clinic and does a tremendous amount of work around that. It just means that you want to be a little more careful about having some professionals check in with you. And that's because some of the behavioral protocols that are part of CBTI require less time sleeping. And if you have a bipolar disorder, that can put you at risk for um, moving people into a manic episode. It's, it doesn't mean it will, it just increases risk. So you just want to balance, you know, risk with, with, uh, with the program. Yeah. And I appreciate your prudence there and your, your thoughtfulness in this age of sound bites of people just kind of shooting from the hip. So it's, I'm glad you're being so uh, gentle and, and careful with your words as I guess suits you well in your profession. I think that also sort of marries well with what we've been highlighting about the book, which is that it has this choose your own adventure quality. So I did the the week of the sleep blogging and then I looked through to see what my what my next steps should sort of be. And I think I've figured out that what I wanted to work on was chapter 10 and chapter seven. 
So that's been my goal moving forward. So chapter 10 is about cognitive restructuring, which maybe we can talk about. And then eventually chapter seven, which I haven't gotten to yet, the real kind of CBT, I think, work here, which is sleep Mm -hmm. restriction. So, And I just want to highlight, I really like the language that you just used. You said, these are the things that I want to work on. And I think that's something that's hugely important that we highlight in, in the model, there are key components, and we want to make sure that you choose at least one behavioral and at least one cognitive, but we put a huge emphasis on willingness because you're much more effective um, in starting out with smaller steps if you're fully willing to take them than to try to do a huge, you know, intense program that you're feeling like you ought to or have to do. So I appreciate that language. Sure. Yeah, and I think in general, at least I can motivate myself when the wins are easy to get, right? And the goals seem uh, manageable. It's, and then once you start stacking those little wins, I think in general for goal setting, that can be a way to build success yeah. quickly. We use our worksheets a lot with each of those chapters to really identify not only what the goals are going to look like, but what are the barriers in terms of, you know, it sounds great now, but when I have to get up and get out of bed at two in the morning and it's cold, you know, how do I prepare for you know, the part of my brain that's not going to want to do that. Yeah, I really like the worksheets. I just, I printed out worksheet 10.1, the one about cognitive restructuring. Maybe we could talk about that. Sure. So just maybe to take a step back. So there's like this bulleted list of things your mind does. Surprise, surprise, the mind's not always either accurate or helpful. No mind is. Uh, There's this list of... No mind is. No mind is. I mean, it's strange, right? We're fallible. Our minds are fallible. Well, you know, I think simultaneously, yes, it's a shame, but it's also kind of liberating (laughs) because then we can stop pretending like they are and we can kind of really harness the power of knowing that, you know, being prepared for the ways that our brain, you know, is fallible can really lead to helping us. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'm just not there yet. I'm still (laughs) in the like, I think I'm still grieving (laughs) the fact that it's, it's, it's fallible. Well, Stephen Hayes said this in his podcast with you, and it's a it's a great act quote, which is, your mind is not your enemy, but nor is it your best friend. Yeah. I still think it's a yeah, shame. No, that's, okay. that's fine. We can, we can be respectful of that. Yeah. So there's this list um, that I think is really instructive, not just in uh, work on insomnia, but in general. So these things called cognitive distortions. And I think once I start enumerating them, everyone will sort of be able to identify with at least some of them. So here's one that's a good one. All or nothing thinking. This is when your mind forces a choice between all or nothing. Perhaps you eat a cookie after you told yourself, no, you have the thought, there goes my diet. I might as well eat them all. Your mind is engaging in all mm-hmm. or nothing thinking. Yep. That's one I think I think I definitely definitely do, or, or, or should I say my brain does. Catastrophizing is another big one. This is when you think that you'll not be able to cope with something bad happening. You're worried that you will not perform well giving a presentation and you think, I will just die of embarrassment. Your mind is engaging in catastrophe. Yeah. So Josh, can you translate those into any anxious thoughts that might be all or nothing or catastrophizing around sleep? Uh, yeah. So, okay, I'm laying in bed. It's like, I don't know what time it is because I've long forsaken right. alarm clocks uh, along the same theme. But, you know, I've sensed that time has passed. Maybe it's been an hour and a half and I think, Gosh, it's already 11.30. I need to get up at 6.30. I'm going to be tired tomorrow. I might as well just get out of bed and, you know, watch a movie on my computer because I'm just not, 
I'm not going to get yep, any sleep. Yep, tonight. that's an excellent example of all or nothing. Yeah. How about catastrophizing? Yeah, that's a good one for me. So catastrophizing, maybe similar situation. It's it's like eleven thirty. I've been in bed for ninety minutes, and I think, you know, tomorrow, I'm my presentation is going to go poorly. My boss is going to think I'm a moron. There's going to be a recession soon, and they're going to have to get rid of the people they think are morons. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be on the chopping block, and then, you know, yeah. So on, and, so and I on. think I think those thoughts are so relatable for people who are struggling with sleep, struggling with anxiety. And again, you know, sort of that's where the brain goes. That's what we mean about the brain being fallible. It doesn't mean that we can't, you know, still see it as this tremendous resource, but we also have to be aware. That's where the term cognitive restructuring comes from, is about being able to be aware of the ways that our brain has a kernel of truth to it. I want to sleep. It has a kernel of truth. I want to keep my job. I want to do well in my presentation tomorrow. But there's this slippery slope of catastrophizing or getting into this very all or nothing kind of lens. Um, And the cognitive restructuring is this resource for respectfully challenging some of those uh, um, distortions, which is what you had referred to. Yeah, which is where there's a kernel of truth in there, but then there's this level of distortion that gets in the way yeah so maybe we can do it because i I think for people who've never seen it done before it can be sort of eye-opening and it's it's been exciting me to sort of do so maybe we could do it with one of those examples great what i i'm 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 delighted to hear um i don't often hear exciting (laughs) when people do cognitive restructuring because it's as you said kind of like the sleep diary valuable and important but sometimes you know sort of uncomfortable what have you found that is kind of exciting to you? Well, I guess I don't find it uncomfortable. I mean, it might be a, uh, a nuisance. I could see it being annoying to do because maybe you have to either whip out the worksheet or, or take a break from your day. But what I think is exciting about it is that, you know, I, I, and I practice mindfulness and meditation and, and that stuff's really good for letting you know the thoughts are there. But this takes it one step further it allows you to sort of build a more mature, a more gentle, maybe a more thoughtful or sober voice in your head that takes the catastrophe and mutates it a little bit so it lands more softly. And, and I think that's exciting, the, the ability to build a new voice in your head that takes care of the angry child and lets them know that the catastrophe is probably not, not going to occur. So it's soothing because it creates more accuracy? It's, it's soothing because it seems like the cost is low to doing it. And I feel like the gains are, are possibly high if it, if it can really change the way you think about a situation and maybe like even the way that you yeah, act. Yeah. And I think that's why it's such a central part of this model. Cognitive restructuring is the heart of the cognitive in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. Because when it, when it creates these kinds of emotional experiences, think about how much more that's aligned with the physiology of sleep than activation and judgment and frustration and fear is. Yeah, right. It'll, it'll, if you have the catastrophe just sitting there unaltered without the restructuring, it'll increase your arousal and make it less likely that yeah. you can get to that. And I, and yeah, so let's walk through it. Cause I think the value as you're saying too, is in really uncovering where there's some inflation of ideas there and how soothing that is to say, wait, yes, there's always this possibility, but there's also all these other possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and you know, we're talking about how great it is. Let's uh, let's let people know what it is. So, 
let's say we take the example of I'm lying in bed, I have a presentation the next morning. At maximum, I know like upper bound, I'm probably only going to get maybe like six hours if I fall asleep immediately. And I'm assuming this is going to lead to poor performance and, you know, the low opinion of my boss and eventually, you know, some really drastic consequences. So that's okay. So if we go according to the worksheet, the situation is I'm still lying in bed. I haven't fallen asleep. The thought is uh, I'm not going to get to sleep. My presentation is going to be bad tomorrow. And then I guess this third column is what are your feelings? Um, so that would be fear. Maybe um, overwhelmed, hopeless. Sort of over, yeah, being overwhelmed, helpless, maybe yeah. pessimistic. And and make no mistake, that's exactly when the wiring shows up that says, oh, how do I fix this? <laughs> right? <laughs> what can I do to make yeah, this right, because your brain wants you to yeah. fix it right then, right then and there. So what's the next step um, after you're aware of this? Um, I, don't have the, I don't have the thought record in front of me, do you? I do. Yeah. I'll, okay. So I know exactly what it is. <laughs> so step two is challenging. Can you find any distortion? If yes, what it is, what is it? And what is the more accurate thought? So I think we know from our, you know, just a minute ago, we know that this is an example of catastrophization mm -hmm. or catastrophizing. And what is the more accurate thought? The more accurate thought is like, oh, well, you know, you're probably decent at what you do. Your boss hired you for a reason. You're not going to be judged on one mm -hmm. performance. And for a lot of people, I can I think there's a lot of benefit in in a more logical thought. How have I handled this before? So for a lot of people, this is not the first time their brain has generated these concerns. It's not the first time they've been tossing and turning, and they have lived through it. So that's that's a really resilient strengths based question too. Is you know how. How, how have I gotten through this in, at other times? Right. You survived being sleepy during a presentation before. Why would this yeah. time? And we want to be really genuine. It won't feel as good. It never feels as good when we're less rested the following day. Um, it's, it's not going to be maybe the best performance of your life. And I can get through this and I can, you know, persevere. So you use the list and the list that we have, you know, so in the book, we we kind of pick the ones that are most salient for chronic insomniacs um, because we know that poor sleepers tend to fall into these very common specific distortions, but it's not an exhaustive list. And if you don't have the book or you want to go beyond that list, you know, just using a search engine and looking it up, there's many, many, many different ones to use. But there are usually a key few like the all or nothing and the catastrophizing that are ones that we see are just the way that our brains get, you know, down the spiral or into that insomnia spiral. And they're very useful to, to be aware of. I think what you said there at the end was, is really helpful. And it's a thread that I want to pull on a little bit. And that's, we're not just saying everything is going to be all, you know, daisies and, and teddy bears. Like tomorrow's probably yeah. going to be hard. Um, you know, you're probably going to be tired and, Maybe it'll take a little bit of extra time for you to feel ready to present and maybe you won't be as quick or have as many jokes as you normally do. It, it's going to be difficult. We're not just sort of drawing a picture of sleep doesn't matter and everything's just going to be hunky-dory tomorrow. And that's hugely important because that's the kernel of truth. You know, cognitive restructuring isn't to, you know, sort of talk you out of your story. It's about separating out the sort of places that 
are being distorted and amplified, but also really honoring that part. And I think that that's a really important values based, which is, you know, sort of back to the acceptance and commitment therapy. Like there's a value in there that I want to be effective and I want to be functional and I don't want to hurt and we don't want to lose that piece of it. Yeah, a hundred percent. And this idea of accepting reality and, and sort of being living in the world instead of the world that you wish would exist, which would be a world in which you're not struggling sleeping. You, you are struggling at this moment and it's difficult and you deserve compassion. Something else I've been thinking about a lot recently, I have some people in my life that are really interested in positive thinking. And I don't know if there's like, this is a cultural movement or maybe there's certain authors or television personalities associated with this idea. And I, I know that through like mindfulness work, it's important to have gratitude and stuff like that. But it seems like from what you guys have written, and I'm thinking about page 148, that positive thinking isn't always the best best kind of cognitive restructuring because it might maybe lead you to disappointment or maybe it's just not realistic. Oh, yes. (laughs) I have lots of thoughts about that. And I want to be, I want to be respectful. I think, again, it comes back to the core idea of functionality. So in ACT and in this workbook, we really, and a part of this idea of it's not a one size fits all, we really get into this personalized conversation of asking yourself on a very regular, constant basis, how is this working for me in terms of workability? Um, And I think that that fits right with the positivity. Like when positivity is a function of motivation um, and a function of choosing to live in accordance to your values, it's, it's really powerful. Where it starts to lose some of its efficacy is when it shifts over into because I have to, because I must, because I've got to, you know, work as hard as everyone expects me to. And so we're really wanting to look at everything through the lens of, of workability. That makes sense? Sure. You're, you're not sort of evaluating positivity based on, I don't know whether or not it sounds like a good idea. It's more about, well, is this helping people? Yeah. And, and that comes back to, um, you know, in, in the book, in terms of recommendations, you know, there's, we want to get away from, you know, there's absolutely the right thing to do. So earlier you said, I don't want to look at my clock anymore. I don't want to know the time. And I think that that's a function of you knowing that that works for you. And there are other people in the world that prefer to look at the clock. And we really, you know, say it's not a right or a wrong. You either do or don't, can or cannot, but more about the function of collecting the data and then deciding for yourself what's the most workable. I was able to program my digital home assistant. I have one of those Amazon Alexas. She's probably listening to us as we speak. (laughs) Um, And I was able to hook up this little applet where I tell her, hey, Alexa, log the time. And so she would make an entry into like an Excel sheet whenever I said that. And then the next morning I'd go and I'd I'd try to fill out the sleep log. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I think that that's super effective. But for other people, that might increase their anxiety. And so we want to be really careful that it is very much about what works for you. 
Yeah, and some people might be sleeping in bed with another human, in right. which case that would be yeah. kind of and, annoying. And in the context of that, we also deliver, you know, sort of the information that if you have been struggling with insomnia for a fair amount of time, um, you know, weeks, months, um, for some people, unfortunately, even years, that in addition to this cognitive restructuring and this psychological flexibility, that you will need to engage in a behavioral intervention to shift that pattern because what happens is is that the brain just adapts as brains are meant to do and then it just becomes the new pattern and so that's a really important piece there's a couple of different behavioral choices and it's really important to do that to get your physiology back into a pattern that is promoting healthy sleep right and so i don't know maybe an example of that is if you can't sleep Everybody knows that you're not supposed to reach for your phone and start scanning the latest headlines from the New York Times, but you might do that because in the short run, you're feeling anxious, you're upset, you wish life were other otherwise, and so this is a way to sort of you know, distract yourself from those harmful feelings. But I think what you're saying and what I've gotten from the book is that when you do that, you tell the brain, hey, 3 a.m. is a good time to figure out what's happening on New York Times. Um, and if you do that enough, that's kind of a data point that your your body is now. That's exactly right. And then from there, what we want to do is go back to this idea of willingness. So if if it feels like um, it's too painful to give that up, then even though you know you read that you should give that up, we want to be a little more flexible, and we want to say, well, what about waiting five minutes before you get on your phone, or what about um, if you're normally on your phone for ten minutes, setting the timer and allowing yourself to be on the phone for eight minutes? Um, so we really want to find this place where people feel like they're willing and able to navigate this change. Sounds like you're really interested in the success of of your clients and the people who read this book. Well, yeah, we have found, um, you know, that it can be a really amazing and powerful tool. Over the years that I've been doing this, I've met people who have really found the ability to restore their sleep and to move towards a healthier sleep pattern. That does not mean that they sleep exactly the way they want to every single night, <laughs> but it does mean that the, it, it feels like the struggle releases a little bit and that the relationship feels more workable. I think that's so amazing that you can provide or that your work has provided that for people. That seems like such a tremendously positive thing uh, to do for, for the Yeah, universe. we feel really grateful. Um, that's why I like to talk about sleep because I do feel like it is a, a protocol that can, can be super supportive. Um, it, it's uncomfortable. It takes more time than we wish it did. The body doesn't you know, shift as quickly as we want it to. And, um, you know, if we can find that place of, of flexibility and, and doing this because it's important to us over time, we really can see some, some pretty important gains. So there's a lot of the book that we haven't talked about that we're not going to get time to talk about, including some of the more difficult uh, steps of the process, depending on where your adventure leads in, in this choice of your adventure, including perhaps um, sleep restrictions or uh, other interventions, depending on what you need the most. I'm still sort of on that journey myself because I haven't finished the workbook, but I definitely encourage you know anyone who's had issues related to sleep to pick up the book because it's it's got I mean the tone is really nice right it's got a, a 
an evidence-based and sort of cheery tone, it's not going to be a book that you don't want to read because it's going to be infused with this idea of success and, and steps that you can take to help you. And I think it's, I think it's a really good text. I, I appreciate well, thank you. And I, I think one of the key points there, if you get to the point where you feel like I'm confused or I'm complicated, you know, it, it, am I doing this right? We really tried to address that at the end of each chapter. We have FAQs, frequently asked questions, and we spent months thinking, you know, at this point, this was the culmination of a decade of sleep work for both of us. So we had quite a bit of um, data at that point, and we wrote down every possible question that we could think of that we had heard from people about, is this the right way to do it? What about this? What about that? And at the end of each chapter, we have all of those FAQs to hopefully be that guiding, you know, sort of support, because I think one of the biggest challenges is that you get pretty fired up and you, you know, start the program and then you can feel a little overwhelmed. So hopefully those FAQs can, you know, help you to keep, keep going. And, uh, you know, as we close, I, we've been talking mostly about the book, but I'm, I'm kind of curious a little bit if, if you have a minute or two of what your journey was and how you wound up uh, working specifically in, in sleep. How did you arrive at this kind of Area. Um, yeah, that's a, a good story. Um, I have some background in some other um, health-related um, interventions, and Alicia and I both went to um, CU Boulder, which is a heavy heavy orientation of CBT. So we both graduated with a very firm grounding of cognitive behavioral therapy. And in the early 2000s, um, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia started to um, gain a lot of momentum and have a lot of robust support and research around it. And a psychiatrist went looking for providers because he wanted to start referring people to using this model. And he contacted the university and Alicia and I were both working in um, the Boulder community. And at the time, you know, we hadn't done much with sleep, but we had this background in CBT. So we thought, well, let's give it a try. And so we got together on a regular basis and we read all the books and we learned the model. And um, over time, we found that then bringing in the ACT model was a nice way to optimize compliance and, um, you know, sort of the struggles that we would see in people. What we typically would see is that people either sort of abandoned the model because it was really too hard or they got so caught up in the model that they there was this rigidity that was showing up um, and I think throughout the book we kind of highlight you know we really want to identify the difference between live to sleep versus um, sleep to live really looking at all of that we just started started kind of incorporating you know the act stuff into the CBT model and then we were just presenting it at conferences because we just thought it was so cool. <laughs> we were like, this is really helping people that are frustrated and struggling. And that one of those um, conferences, the publishing company was in the audience and they then came to us and said, you know, what do you think about writing a book on this? As it turns out, all that information into a book was a was actually a lot more difficult than we had ever imagined. And I think it can sometimes be a little overwhelming, but I think it's also a book that you can come back to for years and it's going to have all the info in there. Yeah, I think it's, it's, and I've read a few of these, um, I think by New Harbinger, these um, mental health based workbooks. This is a good one. Well, thanks. I, I appreciate one. that. There's a labor of love. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, clearly. So um, if I go to like my local uh, CBT 
guy or gal, are they going to be using ACT in it or is it going to be strictly CBTI? Oh, fabulous question. I would say that the answer to that is different even from what I might have answered a year ago. I think that the tipping point for psychological flexibility um, has reached its peak and more than ever people are, are really aware of the benefits. For a long time, it used to be a little bit of a which one is better. And I feel like we've really grown in like integrating all of these different principles. And so I think more than ever, you'll see a growing, like it's not just our book, like Jason Ong in Chicago has a great resource for meditation and mindfulness for insomnia. And Colleen Carney has written about using, you know, flexibility. So I think it's, it's more and more showing up. Cool. Well, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Is there anything I haven't really touched on that that you think would be, you know, useful for listeners to know, or, or do you think? We no, I think start? we covered it. I like to. I think you and I were on the same page, highlighting this paradigm shift away from the fix it, which is again sort of how we're wired, but moving towards this, you know, paradigm of healthy sleep, looking at willingness and flexibility, and then figuring out a program that really um, fits specifically with what you're struggling with. Awesome. Well, Colleen, it's been really a pleasure to both read your book and. And speak to you today. Thank you for for the work that you do, and thank thank you for making uh, sleep a less sort of anxious concept for me. To well, thank you for about. giving the forum for people to to hear that and know that, because I think there are many more people that feel just the way that you do, and hopefully, listening to this will ease some of that anxiety.